Okay, let's pray. Father, again, we just submit ourselves to you. And Lord, again, we just say thank you for making provision for us to live forever with you through Jesus, his sacrifice on the cross. We thank you, Father, that you didn't leave us in our condition, but you adopted us. Put your Holy Spirit inside of us to change us. And Lord, you invested so much in us. Oh, God, you have great, wonderful plans for us. And for that, we're grateful, Father. And Lord, I pray that we would be hungry to where we want everything that you have for us. That we can be the most effective we could ever be as your servants. Lord, to see your kingdom established. And so, Father, I pray that this morning we would hear what the Spirit of the Lord is saying to his body. And we thank you for the grace ahead of time to embrace your word and put it into action. And we thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 3. <clears throat> now, for the last, um, last few weeks, I've been sharing with you what I believe the Lord is speaking for this body, concerning this body, vision, talking about being kingdom builders, seeing God's kingdom, his reign established here on earth. You know, when Jesus came and did things, he said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He said that several times, you know, a lot of references in the Bible. And basically when Jesus came on earth, he was announcing the rule of God on the earth. The beginning of it. And so he said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he demonstrated through healings and dead raising and casting out demons and all those things that God's kingdom was here being established. And there's going to come a point in time in the future when it's going to be fully established. Time has not come yet. But as Jesus told his disciples how to pray in one phrase of it, he says to pray this way, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so I believe a practical application of that is that we are to allow the Holy Spirit through us to establish his kingdom through us here on earth. That as we encounter people, as we encounter situations, God wants to intervene in that situation, but he wants to do it through us. And that's how his kingdom is established uh, all over the world, I believe. And so we talked about that. I talked about two specific cultures that I believe God wants to establish in this place. One, a culture, of expe- a culture of expectation. Where we come on Sunday morning and we expect to meet with God. I mean, our expectation is to meet with God. Our expectation is for Him to have His way. For Him to, to minister and, and to release His presence and His power and His provision for His people. That becomes our expectation. Just like many of us have expectation on Sunday morning, particularly children. On, uh, not, excuse me, it's not Sunday morning, Christmas morning. With a lot of kids, there is a high expectation of receiving presents. I mean, big expectation, right? I mean, if there's no presents under that Christmas tree, something's wrong and you will hear about it from your kids. There will be great protest. And in the same way, 
We want to have that expectation with meeting with God, not because not on a selfish, I demand, give me what's mine, but because I believe God wants to meet with his people because he's the one that set it all up that way. He's the one that set up provision for us to be healed, for us to be set free, for us to experience his goodness, his kindness, his favor. Would you agree with that? So if he went through all that stuff, sending Jesus to the cross, dying a horrible, brutal death. He went through all that so that we can receive his provision, salvation, forgiveness, healing and all that. Don't you think it's a waste for us not to get it? Don't you think that grieves the heart of God for his his people not to receive and walk in the benefits that he's made for us? So God wants to meet with us. God wants to minister to us. He wants to change our lives. It's it's all about what he wants. But what can happen is through tradition and, and man and this and all the stuff that we allow to get in the way, we can come and go through the routine Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. Then our expectation goes down and down and down. And then we no longer expect to meet with God. We just expect to go through the routine. We, we got it figured out. We know what's going to happen. So we go and do our dues of going to church so we can mark that off on our list. And then we go about our, our lives. And we can all fall into that from one extent to another. And, and we know that God wants to change that so that when we come, we expect to meet with God. So that's the first culture. The other culture is a culture of honor. Where we honor one another and love each other the way Jesus honored and loved people. Because Jesus said, this is how the world will know that you're my disciples. And there was one thing he said. And what was that? Is love. He wasn't praying in tongues, although he made that provision available. It wasn't miracles. As far as casting out demons and everything, although that's that's a big part. But at that particular time, he said, this is how. They will know by the love you have for one another. And he says, just as I have loved you in the same way that I have loved you, so you are to love each other. And one thing we can say about Jesus is that he's not going to tell us to do something without giving us the ability to do it. You know, how cruel would it be for God to say forgive or to love or to to pray for and minister to that person so they can be healed? How cruel would it be for God to require and demand us to do these things without giving us the ability to do it? Be pretty, pretty mean, wouldn't it? But God doesn't do that. When he says to love, he has given us the ability through the Holy Spirit. When he says to forgive, he has given us the ability through his grace. So whatever he tells us to do, he gives us the ability to do it. So where we don't treat people based on position or title or lack of position or title, but we treat each other as co-heirs of Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters of the kingdom. Where we establish a culture here. Where we really, truly love each other. And we honor one another. And so we have to learn how to do that. We're going to grow in that. We are growing in that. We have to learn because what happens is what we've learned out there in the world, we bring into the church. 
and the systems and, and the way man thinks, we bring it into the church and then we, we kind of wrap God's principles around it or mix it all up. And then we try to live out God's principles. We try to see as a kingdom established with man's principles, with the way man does it. And that's not right. It doesn't work. And that's why on a large scale, the church in many places is very ineffective because it's all mixed together with God's principles and, and worldly principles, and it just doesn't work. And we need to abandon ourselves to God's principles, God's ways, if we want to see his kingdom established. So we talked about these things, seeing God's kingdom established, seeing his, these two cultures established here at New Covenant Fellowship, culture of expectation, culture of honor. Now, this all sounds great and everything, but how's it going to happen? Turn to Philippians. I know I told you to turn to Matthew, but keep your finger there and turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. I think it's in the New Testament somewhere. Comes before Revelations. I know that. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only for your own interest, but also for the interest of of others. Now, right there, that's a culture of honor. That's what it looks like right there. When you're looking after other people's interests, when you're not looking after your own interests, when you don't have, when you're not full of selfish ambition, when you even consider someone else's needs as more important than your own. If there's any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection of mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Now, how in the world is that going to happen? I mean, as diverse as we are, from the multiple backgrounds that we come from and the, and the multiple experiences and the multiple lifestyles and everything, how are we going to come together like this? To see one thing happen, Jesus be lifted up, his kingdom be established. How are we all going to come together for that to happen? Now turn back to Matthew chapter 3. And this is what we're going to be talking about this morning. Matthew chapter 3. You know, there are some great plans, ideas, systems, uh, strategies that you can try to implement to make some of these things happen, you know, to teach us how to get along and the, um, how to honor one another. There's, there's, you know, there's programs you can buy on the computer to teach you how to do these things. And they might be good programs. But unless one thing happens, God's kingdom will not be established in our lives individually 
and in our congregation. Chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now turn over to uh, chapter 4, verse 17. John started his preaching by saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. It says, From that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Therein lies the key. Repentance. Repentance. Without repentance, there will be no change. There will be no effectiveness. There will be no expression of God's kingdom in my life the way he wants it to express, to be expressed. Now, what does repentance mean? It means you're going one way. When Jesus was, when, when John was calling it out, crying out, and Jesus was saying, people were moving in one direction, their lifestyle was going one way, and he said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, repent, the kingdom of heaven is here. If you want to embrace it, then you have to turn from going your way, about face, and go a different direction. To embrace fully God's kingdom requires repentance. Requires repentance. John chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one, one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So he's saying, unless a person is born again, repentance isn't just changing your mind. It's not just turning over a new leaf. But to embrace, to walk in the kingdom, you have to be born again. Have to be born again. In other words, the Holy Spirit of God comes and dwells within you because it takes the Holy Spirit of God in you to be able to do all that God wants us to do. And here's my concern. When we talk about repentance, of course, it's like, oh, that sounds boring. My concern here in America is that there's a gospel that is preached that makes us think that we can consider ourselves Christians or call ourselves Christians and still live the way I want to live. See, when Jesus said repent, he meant repent. He said things like, if any man wants to come after me, if you want to follow me, you must deny yourself, lay down your own ambitions, take up your cross. And he didn't mean necklaces, you know, cross necklaces or earrings. That's not what he's talking about. Take up your cross and follow me. Back in that day, the cross only meant one thing. When you saw someone carrying the beam of a cross, it only meant one thing. One thing. It wasn't a popular cultural thing. It meant death. It was the most gruesome and horrific way, torture, a person could die. So when he was saying, if any man wants to come after me, he must deny himself, lay down his life, take up his cross, just like Jesus had to carry his cross beam, take it up and follow him. That's what repentance is. 
I'm dying to my life. I'm dying to my way of thinking, my way of doing things. And I'm taking up the life of Jesus. And I'm going to follow you. But unfortunately, we have a, a gospel. And, and because of our, well, I won't say because of, but heavily influenced by our materialism, which we all enjoy to a certain extent. We have a wonderful country, and I praise God for our country. But unfortunately, materialism, capitalism, and all those things, which I'm for capitalism, <laughs> but unfortunately, those things have influenced the gospel message. And we think that I can say I'm a Christian and still live the way I want to live, still make my own choices, still do what I want to do. The Bible does not teach that. And the reason why it concerns me is, is, is Matthew chapter 7. Actually, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 7. This is one passage here that several years ago put the fear of God in me and it hasn't left yet. And I pray that it does the same for you. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Jesus is saying, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my father in heaven. And here's where the scary part came. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? And here's the scarier part. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness or you who practice lawlessness or you workers of iniquity. So he firstly says, not everyone who calls me Lord. Paraphrase, not everyone who, who claims to be a Christian will enter the kingdom of heaven, but those who do the will of, of themselves. That sounded wrong, right? Good. Those who do the will of my Father in heaven. Many on that day will say to me, and see right there when it says many. Many. So therefore, a lot of people think they're okay and they're not okay. And they're going to discover that when it's too late. When they're standing before him thinking that they're going to get props and, and, and accolades and all that kind of stuff because they did all these wonderful things. And then Jesus says, depart from me because I never knew you. What do you think that means? If you're in heaven with Jesus standing before him and he says depart. I don't think he means go to another part of the. Of my kingdom, because I don't want to see you. I don't think that's how it's going to be played out. If you look back in verse 13. It says, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. And then he goes on and then he gets into the verse 21 when he says many on that day. And when I looked at that, it's like, man, that's pretty, should be eye opening. Because we deceive ourselves so easily. 
In other words, we're so we as people are so self-centered that we'll take any message and make it wrap and revolve around us. And we interpret it and twist it and tweak it the way where we like it. We, it fits us. And so then we see the gospel. And I've been guilty of this. I've had to repent of this. We see hurting people, someone who's hurting and they're crying and they're devastated. They just experienced maybe just a horrendous uh, event in their lives. And you're talking to them and you want to encourage them about Jesus. And you say, oh, come, you know, Jesus will help you come to Jesus. He'll take away the pain. He'll do all this. In other words, we, we want to comfort them. So then we will put the gospel in there and say, oh, come to Jesus and he'll help you. And, and all this. And we give them the false and we give them the wrong impression. And I've done this. So I'm speaking from, from experience. And unintentionally, we give them the impression that it's all about them. That come to Jesus in your pain and everything, and he's going to make it all better. And what I've seen happen is people come under those conditions, and they start to feel better. You know, the, the, the tragedy kind of fades, and they're feeling better. Whatever tragedy or hardship or pressure they were experiencing begins to let up. And I'm like, hey, I'm good. Thanks, Jesus. I'll let you know when I need your help again. And they leave. I don't know how many people we've counseled when they were in uh, challenges and struggle and everything. Oh, they come to church, come to church, come to church. Joe, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Then Jesus helps them. The grace of God is experienced in their lives or, or he helps them out of his mercy. Then they get better and then they leave. You don't see him anymore until problems come again. And I cannot find in the gospel, in the counsel of, of the word of God, where we come to Jesus for him to fix our problems. And then when our problems are better, we go and do our own thing. That's not the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom is the kingdom is here. Repent in order to embrace it. Now, all the benefits are cool. I mean, heaven is not a little thing. Forgiveness of sin, forgiveness of the guilt and that burden, all that stuff that we have to carry on ourselves, we don't have to have that anymore. So that's no little thing. So in that sense, God made the benefits for us. But in order to receive the benefits and walk in the benefits, Jesus says, repent. Repent. And we've watered it down and we've changed the meaning of it or we ignore it. And we and I've I've been guilty of this, you know, make fun of you hear fire and brimstone preachers. They're the ones that preach on repent, turn or burn, you know, and they talk about sin and all that kind of stuff. And we make fun of them and we dismiss them and the message. Now, there may be some extremes. I've seen some of those, heard some of those. But the core message of repentance was from Jesus himself. And see what happens then is you get churches full of people that believe they're okay. They grew up in a church family or they went to church and maybe when they were little kids, the youth pastor scared them, started talking about hell and said, if you don't want to go to hell, you better raise your hand and repeat this prayer after me. I did that, age 16. Did not want to go to hell. 
So I raised my hand, repeated the prayer. That kind of thing. I wasn't embracing and submitting to a king. I was escaping a place. You see what I mean by that? I wasn't saying, Jesus, I submit to you. I repent, turn from my sin. It was like, I don't want to go there. What do I need to do? Where do I sign? And so I I prayed a prayer. I kind of did the ritual thing. Hocus pocus, abracadabra, whatever I needed to say to escape that, to embrace that. That's what I was. That's what I did at age 16. My life didn't change. My lifestyle didn't change. Nothing changed. And what concerns me about that is how many people do the same thing. I remember, um, Robin, you may remember some of this when we'd go out witnessing. Went out on on the uh, boomer. And I remember we came across these people that were young people, either early college or, or high school, you know, drinking, partying. And we're engaging them, talking and everything and just wanting to minister and witness, let them know about Jesus. And then you hear things, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian, too. Beer in hand, partying, I'm a Christian, too. And then this, I remember this one girl. But I believe once saved, always saved. And see, the gospel message she got from my interpretation of what her actions were and what she was saying is, I prayed the prayer, so I'm saved forever. Now I can do what I want to do. And I remember how many people, or not remember, but I think, I wonder how many people have that same philosophy. And it's like, you know, now I don't know if the girl got saved. I don't know if her heart was truly, if she was born again. I'm not judging that and saying she's not, because I do not know. But my concern is how many people think they're okay and are going to find out when it's too late. And those people or many people come into the church thinking they're okay and then they want to live kingdom life, but they're doing it through an unregenerate soul without the power of the Holy Spirit. And so then you have a group of people coming together and everybody has their opinions and ideas and the way they think it ought to be. And then you try to come together with unity. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. I guarantee it. If I was a betting man, I'd put a whole bunch of money. I'd even borrow money (laughs) to place a wager on that because it's not going to happen. First Corinthians 13. Let me find it. Excuse me, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. I'm going to just read it. You can mark it. 2 Corinthians 13, 5, it says, this is Paul talking. He says, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail the test? He's challenging them to examine themselves, test themselves. Are you in the faith? Don't just think praying a prayer Makes everything okay. Now, praying a simple prayer, someone can just say, Jesus, and be born again. They say, well, they come across the Bible and it says, call upon the name, those who call upon the name of the Lord, Jesus. 
And they can be born again because the expression of their heart is, I submit to you. I'm yours. I don't know how to do this thing. I don't know the words to pray, but Jesus. And bam, Holy Spirit comes inside of them and they're born again. So it's not the words that are important. The words of the prayer is the expression of the heart. And so Paul is telling them, you need to test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves or do you not recognize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is not in you? That Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Do you agree with that? It's out of the word. Okay, I just read Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Yes, that's the word of God. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God and it is by confessing with your mouth that you are saved. So it's confessing with your mouth and believing in your heart. But what are you confessing? Here's where I think some people miss it because I've been in, in, in situations where they say, do you believe that, that Jesus is Lord? Yes. And um, you believe that God raised him from the dead? Yes. Okay, you're, you're saved. And see, and, and we don't really understand what it means to believe. We don't understand the Hebrew and the Greek word to believe. We think it means mental agreement. I agree with the fact that Jesus is God's son, that God risen from the dead, that he's Lord. I, I agree with that. But if you look at John chapter 3, verse 36, in the New American Standard Version, it might be in the... There's some versions that say believe or, or don't believe, but a couple of versions say it like this. John chapter 3, verse 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Do you see that? In other words, believe and obey are interchangeable. It's the same. So when you say, I believe in Jesus, then you're saying, I'm going to obey Jesus. Right here it says, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son does not, will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And so back in Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus says, Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. What is it that you're doing? I believe when you confess Jesus as Lord, it's not just lip service. But you are bowing your knees and saying, Jesus, you are my Lord. Now, what does that mean? Now, the, Lord, the term Lord is not in our vocabulary in the United States. Unless you're talking about your landlord. But when someone is your Lord, that means they're your boss. They own you. Do you realize that when you say Jesus is Lord, you are saying Jesus is my master. I am your slave. That's slave. That's a heart. I don't like that term because it has such a negative connotation through history. We shouldn't like that term. But let's talk about the master we're talking about. 
Talking about King Jesus, him being our master. Now, he's different from the the masters here on earth. But he is master. See, in our society, we believe in democracy. Amen. I believe in democracy. I agree with it. But Jesus' kingdom is not a democracy. You know, there's monarchies, there's kingships, and the king is law. What the king says is law, right? If you're in a kingdom and your king says, this is going to be the law, and you say, "Um, excuse me, I don't like that law. I think I'll just do it this way. Now, if you happen to say that, if you were under a king and you happen to say that, what do you think would happen? Yeah. You probably wouldn't even hear the words off with your head. You'd hear, oh. Because in a kingdom, the king is law. The king is not voted in, and he's not voted out. A king is born into his kingdom, just like Jesus was. And he can't be voted out. And we all agree with that. But where we disagree, as far as our practice, is we believe that we can override his law, his word. Jesus says, do this. Um, Jesus, I don't like that. For an example, Jesus have anything to say about our money? Does his word have anything to say about our money? Just hypothetically speaking. He says, I want you to do this with your money. The kingdom of God preaches and teaches principles on finances, giving. It's not unclear. And then we say, I say, I don't like that. I'm going to do what I want to do. That's just an example. And you know, one thing, you know, living here in this in this community for several years now, since 1984. And I remember um, as a youth papper, (laughs) I was a youth papper one day and then I. That I graduated as a youth pastor. But as a youth pastor, I was amazed at, at the parents. What I observed, you know, Christian parents, it's like the assumption for their kids when they graduated from high school, the assumption was they're supposed to go to college. And you're going to have that when you live in a, a society or a community like ours, a, a university society. It's like, and, it, and it's not with just the youth, but in the churches. It's like the, the given is you graduate from high school, so then you go to college. And I remember, are you going to pray about that? What's there to pray about? You go to high school, then you go to college. I mean, we've got a beautiful college right here. So, I mean, duh, that should be obvious, right? And it just showed me, and, and I just began to see the mindset. That basically, I say I'm a Christian, but I'm going to do what I want to do and expect him to put a stamp of approval on it. Oh, Jesus, by the way, you know, I'm graduating this week and I'm going to college, got a full ride scholarship and I'll be going to university for four years. And then I'm going to transfer to OU and go to medical school down there. And then I'm going to go to Vanderbilt and all that. And I appreciate your blessing on that. 
And see, our, our whole way of thinking is really, really, really messed up. It is really messed up. There are all kinds of scriptures in this book right here that tell us things and we choose to not do them. Jesus says, why do you, now I'm paraphrasing, but it's Luke chapter 4, verse 46. Why do you even bother to call me Lord and you don't do what I say? Why would you even bother calling me Lord if you're not going to do what I say? It's like that didn't even make sense. It doesn't make sense. But say, oh, Jesus is my Lord. And then he says, good, I want you to do this uh, when I get to it. Or if I have time. You know, thinking of our gospel, you know the gospel is true. You know if, if, if God's principles are being taught, if it's something that's multicultural. If you can take the word, the gospel, and take it to another culture and see if it works over there. And I was thinking the gospel here that we preach or that's kind of prevalent, would it work in Iran? Where maybe being a Christian will get you killed. Would it work in China? And I was thinking, you know, in certain places of the world, to be a Christian is literal death. So when, when, if I'm in Iraq or Iran or somewhere, and I'm, someone's presenting the gospel to me, and let's say I'm a Muslim, my family's all Muslim, I'm a Muslim, and some Christian is sharing the gospel with me, and he says, you need to give your life to Jesus, you know, submit to him, all that kind of stuff. I realize for me to do that, I'm turning my back on everything I grew up with, everything I believe. And I realize, too, best case scenario, I'm going to be disowned. Worst case scenario, after I'm disowned, I'm going to be killed. So do you think God says, okay, over in these hard places, yeah, I require them to live and them to die for Jesus. But over in America... Relax. Take it easy. Now do it. It's okay. You're free. I don't want you to have stress, be stressed out. You know, if your friends don't like you because you're a Christian, you don't have to, you know, really let them know you're a Christian while you're around them. But then when, you, when you're around other people, then you can... Is that the way it is? Do you think that's what the gospel's about? But in our society, how prevalent is that? How prevalent is that? If I don't have time to spend with Jesus on a regular basis, if I don't have time to read his word, can I really say that he's my Lord? Some people say, oh, illegal, you're legalism. Oh, hold on, CJ. That's legalism. Hmm. If I were to tell you how to spend your time, if I were to tell you how many times a day to do it, that's legalism. But how are you going to know what your king wants you to do if you don't spend time with him? If I... I'm not spending time with him on a regular basis. If I am not absorbing what his word is telling me, then he is not my Lord. 
I am my Lord. I'm calling the shots. But every once in a while, I'll tune in to see what he has to say. Oh, what was that, Jesus? Okay, yeah, I'll get to that. Oops, got to go. And see, we live that, you know, oh, I'll get to the Bible when I have time. I'll read, I'll spend time with the Lord and all that kind of stuff. I'll do it. But we're so busy. Our society drives us. Busyness is our idol. And we're just driven by all this stuff and just bombarded by And then to get it, to get a reprieve from that driving, I check out in entertainment because I'm tired. And so then entertainment just fills my soul, my mind, my soul, my mind. And then I run out into the rat race again and I'm driven. I'm going to work. I'm doing all this stuff, whether it's family, work, school, everything. I'm driven by all that. And then I'm tired. So I retreat to entertainment. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And then for my quiet time, I have a little thing on my table that has a little scripture on it. Jesus wept. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Put it back in there and I go about my day. Have my quiet time. Read the word. But I'm a Christian and Jesus is my king. See any kind of discrepancy in that? And then me and many others like me, we come together and form a local congregation and we expect to see God's kingdom manifest. You think it's going to happen? What's going to be manifest? The strongest personality. The loudest mouth. I think it grieves the Holy Spirit when we're busy playing church and people are busy dying. Repentance is non-optional. If God's word says that I'm to love my wife as Christ loves me, is that an option? The word says that I'm supposed to honor and obey my parents. Is that an option? Wives, respect your husbands. Love one another as I have loved you, Jesus said to his disciples. When we can live our own lifestyle and it's full of sin and think that's okay, we got a problem. We have a major problem. And my heart today is that God will convict us 
been praying this week, God, convict us, convict me, convict me. I've been praying, God, convict me. Because, see, we have an idea of what repentance means, and then we even fall short of that. But we need a revelation from the Holy Spirit of what it really means to repent. And then once we're born again, what it means to walk in a lifestyle of repentance. We're going to talk about that more next week. But Paul says, examine yourself, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. And if you are in the faith, where's your allegiance? Is Jesus Lord? Is he your king? Does your checkbook, your pocketbook, your money, your finances, does it declare that Jesus is Lord? You know, I've heard, I've heard people say, I haven't counted the scriptures myself, but they say he talked about money more than any other topic. That Jesus talked about money more than any other topic. Thinking, why would that be? What can grab your heart more than any other thing? So do you think God would have some, some protective devices in place? For example, tithing and giving. The practical side of that is for my protection so that money does not become my idol. And the moment I cannot let go of that is the moment I realize money is my idol. When I can surrender it the way God directs me to, it shows who's boss, shows who's Lord. But when I can't let go of it, I don't know. Hmm, it's a lot of money. That dollar fifty is a lot of money. That's just a practical thing. Or when I get more money, I'll tithe. When I have more time, I'll spend more time with Jesus. When everything calms down, then I'll be nice to my family. Let's stand. You know what messages like this, what I struggle with is you don't want mo- emotion to be the, the driving force. But on the other hand, you can't rule out emotion because God gave us emotions. So my prayer is not that the emotional climate or the climate is conducive for your emotions to be triggered so that you repent. My prayer is that the Holy Spirit gets a hold of our hearts. And we're driven to repentance because we see, God, you are king. You are my Lord. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask Shannon. There's a this song that was played earlier during the when we we're filling out the questionnaires. I'm going to play that song. And if you recognize the fact that you need to repent, the Holy Spirit's dealing with you. You may realize that, you know what, I've never committed my life to Jesus Christ. I'm not even born again. And you say, Jesus, I'm coming to you. I want to be born again. 
then I want you to come up front and you declare that to him. And you sing the song and declare to him that he's your Lord. Maybe you are born again. You realize, man, I said, Jesus, you're my Lord, but I've taken ownership of a whole lot of stuff. And you realize I need to repent. I want to invite you to come forward and get things right with him.